Now please open your Bibles again with me at Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. As we said earlier, we're looking at this uh, account of Abram's rescue of Lot and the events that happened afterwards as being tests sent by God to strengthen Abram's faith. Tests of danger and tests of prosperity. Now, Abraham is, of course, the man of faith. He is the the great model of what it is to to walk by faith, not by sight. He's held up for us uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, uh, and Romans 4, James, James chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, they hold up Abraham as the great example of what it is to be uh, a man of faith. Now, when we, when we come to trust in Jesus, we've just got the tiniest amount of faith. It doesn't require a huge and robust amount of faith to believe in the Lord, to cry out to him, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins, be my saviour. But as we go on in the Christian life, and as we have this desire to, to please God, and to be fruitful for God, then we want that faith to grow. We want our faith to become stronger, more robust. And God, in his dealings with us, strengthens our faith by sending circumstances which often we wouldn't choose ourselves. Things that challenge us, things which are difficult to go through. And it's passing through these things that help us to grow And so spiritual growth, uh, the making of men and women of God, takes place mainly when life is hard. Strange, isn't it? That's true. It's when difficult decisions have to be made. It's when we're tired. It's when we're depressed. When things are against us, that we will grow as Christians when we go God's way and trust Him. So if there's one thing to take away from from the whole sermon uh, this evening, one thing that you need to take away is that your biggest steps of growth in the Christian life will come when life is difficult. These are the growing points. And so you need to be on the lookout for lessons that God may be teaching you when things are hard. Because the ways in which God works to develop character are largely through adversity. So don't miss out on the growth opportunities. There's a saying, you can either go through hardship or you can grow through hardship. Make it your aim to grow through hardship. Don't miss the lessons in God's school. And so it is that Abram is going to grow in his faith in the living God through the challenges that God sets him. Challenges of two very different kinds of danger and of prosperity. An international event occurs which throws Abram's life into turmoil. Canaan uh, is overturned by an invasion led by Kedarlaomer of Elam, which is part of modern Iran, and Amraphel of Babylon, part of modern Iraq, and two other kings, probably from the area of modern Turkey. 
For 12 years, the cities of the Dead Sea uh, had submitted to this uh, Eastern alliance, and then they rebelled. Hederleomer and his associates have now come to teach these upstarts, these rebels, a lesson. They go on a raid that takes them down the east side of the Jordan uh, to the tip of the Red Sea and then back up through the Negev, the desert area, to the southern border of the territory of the rebels. The rebels, these, uh, these chiefs of these uh, city-states, they choose their ground. They choose to stand in the valley of Sidon. Uh, this area had pits which were filled with tar, with asphalt, and they reckoned that this would help them defensively, but actually uh, it turns against them. As the tide of battle changes, uh, they fled to the mountains in haste, and many of them uh, fell into the pits of tar and were destroyed. So there's this big battle involving powers from a distance uh, going on. And it would all have perhaps bypassed Abram, would have had nothing to do with Abram, were not for the fact that his nephew Lot is taken captive by these victorious eastern kings led by Kedarlaomer. Now we've seen that Lot has been edging ever closer in his contacts with the people of Sodom. Uh, Sodom uh, is a, a name today that we associate properly with wickedness, with depravity, with godlessness. And Lot's history, as recounted in Genesis, is one of, of uh, messing with wickedness. Uh, we find, first of all, in chapter 13, that he pitched his tents near to Sodom. Then we find in the, the present chapter, in verse 12, that he was living in Sodom. Okay, so he's gone from pitching his tents near to Sodom to actually taking up residence within Sodom. Now, I want to say straight away that this is, uh, this is parabolic, this is symbolic of what many Christians do. Uh, and they follow a, a, a path that, first of all, uh, may be a, a path of good intention, wanting to uh, relate and to, 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 to share the faith with, with non-Christian people, but become more and more comfortable uh, in that alien environment until they become absorbed by it. Now, we were thinking this morning of the, the tension that there is, how we're to follow Jesus, where Jesus goes to uh, relate to, to non-Christian people on their turf. But at the same time, when Jesus does that, he confronts the world with the claims of the gospel. But in the case of Lot, we find him living precariously in the community of Sodom until he comes into uh, this uh, upheaval and is taken away captive. And that, again, is descriptive of what can happen to uh, believers. Uh, they become adjusted to the company of people who are godless. They become used to uh, drunkenness, bad language, aggressive attitudes and behavior. First of all, they feel like fish out of water in this company. They're tenting beside Sodom. They're not living within Sodom. Uh, uh, it's at a distance, but more and more they become comfortable with it. They wander into the spiritual danger zone. They settle down and soon Soon they have very little to say to their Christian friends. They've moved cultures. 
They have no time for the prayer meeting or for worship or for witness and service. They become assimilated into the world. And there's a great danger. We have to be salt and light. Uh, we can only be salt if we're in contact with the world, but we can only help the world if we're different from it. We see in Lot an example of somebody who uh, gradually was absorbed into uh, a godless community and found himself caught up in the overthrow of that community. Now this new situation provides a challenge to Abram's trust in God and his willingness to rely on God. And first of all, there is an element in in Abram's character that is going to be challenged and tested. There is, it has to be said, a cowardly streak in Abram. Now we saw that uh, in the way that Abram behaved in Egypt. We see him shown up in a bad light. He had told Sarai to make out that she was his sister rather than his wife, which was, of course, a a half-truth. And the idea was that if any of the Egyptians took a fancy to Sarai, then they weren't going to kill him to get him out of the road because he was the husband, but uh, they would simply take her to themselves because Abram didn't present an obstacle. So it it was pretty pathetic, if we're being straight. It was a cowardly path that Abram took. At the same time, I suppose we can identify with that too, because uh, we, if we're honest, uh, would probably acknowledge that we're not particularly heroic. Uh, We would have been tempted uh, to say uh, that, tempted, uh, sorry, tempted uh, regularly to take the path of least resistance. And there's another opportunity. Uh, in this present situation for Abram to take the path of least resistance. He could have said to himself, well, what's happened to Lot? This news that Lot has been taken captive by this invading force, well, he's made his bed and he'll have to lie on it. He brought it on himself. And really what happens to Lot is no longer my responsibility. He could have said that. He could have argued that The obligations of kinship are limited, but we're not obliged to risk life and limb for someone else's foolishness. He could, in other words, have been quite judgmental towards Lot. He could have forgotten uh, that he himself is a fellow sinner. And we can take that uh, line also when we're faced with similar situations. So there's a particular uh, area of Abram's life which is again being tested. His willingness to do something for God, which will require him to trust God, which will require some courage, which will require him to turn his back on the easy and the cowardly route. That brings us, as we apply this to ourselves, to two principles in regard to temptation. And the first is that we should never forget that we are sinners and we're going to struggle with temptation all our lives until we're in glory. None of us are immune from temptation. None of us should fail to recognize that there is a remnant of sin dwelling within us. If we're Christians, it no longer dominates our lives. But it's there. There is a pool and the devil will fan uh, into flames that, 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 that desire to move away from God, pull away from God. And we have to recognize that it's a reality. 
And the second thing, the second principle is that acknowledging that we are sinners, we should try to be self-aware. We should try to recognize the, the weaknesses in our own character which function as avenues for the devil. Places where we would be exposed to temptation. The joke about the, the doctor who's confronted by uh, a patient uh, who says he, he broke his arm in two places and the doctor replies, well, and stay out of them places. And there's a spiritual application there because there are situations where we are going to come into trouble spiritually because we are, by temperament, weak in those areas and we are inviting temptation to expose ourselves uh, to uh, the devil in these particular areas. We need to take the doctor's advice and stay out of them places. We need to know ourselves, to know our makeup. We need to ask ourselves, in which area of my life would Satan most likely try to knock me down? Where am I weak at present? Uh, am I tired just now? Am I depressed? Are there habits which I am developing that aren't helpful? Am I preoccupied with money? Am I exposed to sexual temptation? Am I walking close with God? Or am I neglecting my quiet time? Where have I failed most recently? Where is the devil most likely to make his attack? We need to be on the lookout. We need to be alert and aware. And so I'm suggesting to you that Satan sought to undermine Abram in a way that he had used recently. Uh, he wanted to re-expose Abram's tendency towards self-preservation and towards cowardice. And Abram resisted the temptation to wash his hands of his responsibility to Lot because that would involve danger. And instead he entrusted himself to God's care and took action. Now is the time for Abram to call in favours, and he does. He spoke to Mamre, Eskel and Anner, and they came to his aid. He mobilises 318 of his own fighting men. He's now got an extensive household. He calls them together. By this time, the invading party is well to the north, but Abram leads the pursuit. Uh, he launches this coordinated night attack from several directions. He shows remarkable uh, combat skills and although this combined army from the east was almost certainly much larger they're routed and they're pursued until north of Damascus and Abram manages to rescue Lot and his family and he also returns with a great deal of spoil and the, the main application of this to ourselves is that Abram has learned to put his confidence in God and do what's right, rather than to be preoccupied with the saving of his own skin. And his action shows that there's a balance uh, required in the life of faith. Because sometimes uh, to live by faith is to, to be passive. Sometimes we have simply to, uh, to let God uh, order events and we do nothing. Um, and we see an example of that when Abram offers Lot the first choice of the land, okay? Uh, he allows things to go out, out of his hands. He trusts God that the working out 
of Lot's decision will uh, end up for God's glory. But in this case, Abram's faith is active. It uses his skills in combat to win a great victory. And so, as people of faith, we need to be sensitive to God's uh, will, God's plan. And when we're in a position to do something which would right a wrong, it may require more faith to take action than simply to say, well, I'll leave it up to God. If we're in a position to do something to right that wrong. Abram faced overwhelming odds, and when the test came as to whether he'd trust God in the face of danger, he didn't fail. You know, the line of, of the hymn, uh, On with Christian Soldiers, when duty calls or danger be never wanting there. There was a duty laid on Abram, uh, it was duty in danger, but he was not found wanting, he trusted God. And in this case, the, the path of faith was to be active and to strike out. Uh, to right this wrong. This next test that Abram faces is very different from this. It's a test of prosperity. And sometimes that is the harder test. Now if we think about this principle of trying to see where we are vulnerable to Satan, which areas of my life am I most vulnerable to Satan? If Abram was to ask that, if he was to make an inventory of his weaknesses then he would probably have to say the area of wealth would surely be an area where the devil would try to undermine my relationship with God. Wealth is something which is always very difficult for a man or woman of faith to handle. And Abraham had by this time become very wealthy. Uh, he'd acquired a lot of things. He was like the Duke of Athol. He could raise his own army. He had 318 men at his disposal. Uh, he had accrued possessions. Everywhere Abraham goes, he seems to accrue more wealth. When he stopped off in Haran, he accumulates wealth. When he goes down to Egypt, he accumulated wealth. When he lets Lot take the better land, he still keeps prospering. God's hand is on him. But that brings him into a great temptation as well. Wealth can be a great snare. And if that's true of Abram, it's true of us as well, because although none of us uh, likes to think of ourselves as wealthy, we'd never say, oh, I'm, I'm well off. Uh, we are, by world standards, well off. And the way that we handle money will always be uh, a potential temptation. We ought to seek God's aid uh, so that whether we're enjoying times of prosperity or whether we're going through times of hardship, we don't lose our focus on God. Whatever our bank balance is saying, God should be our great treasure, our great reward. I like the lines in, in uh, Matt Redmond's uh, song, uh, Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when the sun is shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. When there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Whatever our circumstances, health or illness, wealth or poverty, let God be our, our focus, our, our, our treasure. Again, consider Abram's condition. Uh, 
uh, he is vulnerable, isn't he, to attack by the evil one. Emotionally, he's open to an attack from the enemy. He's very tired. He has pursued the enemy uh, with his band of soldiers over a long distance. He's tired, and we're, we're open to attacks by Satan when we're run down. But it's complicated here. He's not only tired, he's elated. He's won a great victory. And a time like that can be a time when Satan can come in like a flood. Ironically, you can be, for example, at a Christian conference and, uh, and really full of the joy of being with lots of other Christians and also tired because you've had lots of late nights in the course of it. And Satan can come in unexpectedly, knock you over, vulnerable in different ways. Abram doesn't realise it, but his next big test is on its way because the king of Sodom is coming to meet him along with an offer that he thinks Abram wouldn't be able to refuse. King of Sodom comes to meet him at the valley of the plain known as the King's Valley, but God has ordered things so that another king is also present. And this is a most interesting figure, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And he is interesting. He's also an, a very mysterious figure. Uh, he seems to be a devout worshipper of the one true God, and he greets Abram with a double blessing. And in the, the New Testament, uh, in fact, in the, the Old Testament as well, Melchizedek is seen as somebody uh, who has great significance. He's a type of the Messiah. In other words, when, when you think about this historical person who was Melchizedek, you're being pointed forward to the promised king, the Messiah. Psalm 110, which was a psalm which was uh, probably sung at the coronation of the Davidic uh, kings, uh, declares that the Davidic king, remember the Messiah, is going to come from the, the line of David that the Davidic king is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, there are similarities drawn between this mysterious king who appears from nowhere and Jesus. Uh, the writer tells us that Melchizedek uh, has no forebears. He's got no antecedents. There's no history. And, and then he disappears from view immediately. And so he says, isn't this like the eternal reign of Jesus, our king and priest? He's a special kind of priest because the, the Jewish priesthood were all descended from Aaron. They were of the, the tribe of Levi and of the house of Aaron. But Melchizedek, although he's a priest, was obviously not of Aaron's house because Aaron hadn't been born. So he's before them. Jesus, in a similar way, is a priest, but he's not of the tribe of Levi, because Jesus, according to his human line, is of the tribe of Judah. So again, there's a similarity. They're of a different line uh, from the, the normal Jewish priesthood. And then uh, there is his name. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And his office is king of peace. He's king of Salem. 
shalom, peace. And these are the offices of Jesus, our King. He is our, our King of righteousness, our King of peace. And Melchizedek, again, as the writer to the Hebrews uh, brings out, he blesses Abram. Rather than Abram blessing him, he blesses Abram and so shows himself to be superior to Abram. This mysterious priest king comes out of nowhere and blesses Abram. So in a wonderful way, this shadowy person, Melchizedek, is pointing us forward to the Redeemer Jesus. He's the shadow, Jesus is the reality. But what does he mean for Abram in this practical context? Well, his coming to Abram is one of these marvelous moments when the Lord God refreshes us, when we need to be refreshed, strengthens us from a, for a challenge that lies ahead of us. You know, when, when I, I'm thinking of this, this encounter between Melchizedek and Abram, I think how it uh, is, is similar to the, the people who came, who travelled out of Rome to meet Paul when he was on his way to house imprisonment. Uh, we read about that in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke says, so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged Paul was encouraged by these men who came all the way out to meet him on his journey to imprisonment. And God has sent this, this man Melchizedek to be an encouragement to Abram, who is elated but tired, who's about to face a, a real test of faith. God sends encouragement and Melchizedek comes and he refreshes him. And he does so at a number of levels. He supplies his basic needs. He sets a meal before him. And sometimes good Christian friends do just that. They'll notice that uh, you're exhausted and they'll say you need to eat. And hey presto, a meal's provided when you most need it. I don't think there's anything particularly significant about the, the wine or bread that Melchizedek lays before Abram. He simply provides for him uh, physically. Secondly, uh, he confers God's blessing on Abram. A wonderful thing. And it's something that every Christian can do for every other Christian. As priests uh, to God, we uh, make intercessory prayer for our Christian brothers and sisters. And we ask the Lord to bless so-and-so. But he's going through a hard time, Lord, and she needs your blessing upon her life. And thirdly, Melchizedek encourages Abram for this test before him by reminding him of the great God that he serves. This God, Melchizedek says, is he's the creator of heaven and earth. And literally, and if you look at the footnote in the NIV, you see it's the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, who's going to have a an attractive, a juicy offer given by, uh, by the king of Sodom, he need not be seduced by worldly wealth because his God owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And God sends Melchizedek at the very right time. How wonderful God is. How compassionate he is for us. How he pities his children. He knows that we are dust. And he sends along encouragement 
at the very right time to fortify us, to strengthen us in our time of testing. Melchizedek was such a person. But the other king, king of Sodom, a very different character. Instead of recognising that he is hugely indebted to Abram, uh, he wants to stipulate how the spoils of war should be shared. He thinks that he can enrich Abram. Abram will have nothing to do with it. He's determined that nothing which belonged to the king of Sodom will come into his possession. No one later on in history will be able to say Abram was enriched by the king of Sodom. Now again, there's a practical implication, isn't there, in that? As Christians, we should avoid financial commitments which entangle us uh, with ungodly people or ungodly uh, institutions, uh, enmeshing ourselves in commitments which would blunt our witness for Christ. Uh, We can be compromised if we receive uh, a financial reward from an ungodly source. Someone may be only too happy to, to bless us as they see it with a financial reward because they know they can call in the favour at a later date. Abram was ready to miss out on a big financial reward because it would have prevented him standing prophetically against the king of Sodom at a future date. And so we also, as Christians, we need to avoid entangling ourselves with the devil's money. Well, see, it's hard hard to know what's the devil's money. It's a complicated world out there. How do we know uh, what's tainted and so on? Well, the way that we can test any situation is to simply ask the question, if I accept money from this source, if I accept it, is it going to prevent me from distancing myself from something they do of which I might disapprove? Does it commit me? Does it, as it were, bring me into fellowship with this person or this group? That's why uh, churches have been right to refuse lottery money for improvements to church structures because it means that they can't speak prophetically against uh, a vice which impoverishes the poorest in our country. They can't speak out against it if they are recipients in that way. And in different ways, at different levels, uh, we want to be on our guard, as Abram was on his guard. And so we leave. We leave Abram, uh, and we leave the company of this mysterious priest-king, Melchizedek. Uh, it's a wonderful thought that uh, this, this Melchizedek comes into the, the, the scene unexpectedly at this time to encourage Abram and to be a reminder as well that this, this storyline, as we trace it through the book of Genesis, is all about Jesus. It's moving towards the, the fulfillment of the promise made back in Genesis 3.15 of the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And coming now through Abraham, through all, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's Jesus' plan that is unfolding. And it's Jesus who reminds us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. May God bless to us.
preaching of the <coughs>